0: Hi, this is Chantel Schiefer, president and CEO of Leadership Montana. Views and opinions shared by guests of Listen First Montana do not reflect the opinions of all of our alumni or organization. We are a large group with lots of opinions, believe me. If you hear something that makes you uncomfortable, we invite you to listen deeply, listen hard, and listen first.
1: Welcome to Listen First Montana. I'm Eric Halverson. This afternoon, I'm in Butte, Montana, with Courtney McKee, owner and co-founder of Headframe Spirits and Headframe Spirits Manufacturing, a distillery and distillation equipment manufacturing company. Courtney is a graduate of both the Leadership Montana flagship and master's classes. She's an entrepreneur, a writer, a mother of two, and a well-known change agent in the US microdistilling industry. Courtney formerly ran and owned her own IT consulting company when her husband John's employer, a biofuels company, went bankrupt. Standing at a critical juncture in which leaving Butte and Montana was a real possibility, Courtney got creative. She pushed John to combine his love for a good cocktail with his deep technical understanding of distillation. Stirring Courtney's leadership and creativity and headframe spirits was born. To give you a small idea of their success, Courtney and John were recognized as the 2013 Montana Entrepreneurs of the Year. The origin story and growing success of their business is fascinating, and I highly encourage you to check out the Can Do podcast hosted by Arnie Sherman for a more in-depth look at how they built their business. But here's what's so awesome about Headframe Spirits to me. It is way more than a place to grab a drink. It's a tribute to Butte. In fact, spirits to Courtney appears to mean far more than their Never Sweat Whiskey, and Selmo Gin, or High Ore Vodka. Courtney embodies the entrepreneurial spirit while seemingly making all choices in the spirit of lifting people up and strengthening her community. And the value offering to Headframe customers seems to start and end with the spirit of Butte. We'll talk more about that in the show. After just a few conversations with Courtney prior to this recording, what really stuck out to me was Courtney's ownership of how life is messy, and I quote, I used to assume that people who are successful and awesome at something have all their shit together and are great people all around, but that's not the way the world works. I can be both amazing and not have all my shit figured out, That doesn't make me weird, it makes me honest. Courtney McKee, welcome to the podcast.
0: <laughs> Thank you. You said you used the word shit twice in your intro. You didn't tell me that you were quoting me both times. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Butte sort of has a culture around swearing. Yeah? No?
0: Butte has a culture of, of being pretty, I think, laid back um, and honest. I think it's a it's sort of a culture of sincerity. Um, and I think the swearing kind of flows from that. We don't have to pretend to be a little bit fancier than we are. We just sort of get to be ourselves.
1: Before we talk about your companies, I'd like to learn more about who you are. Who is Courtney McKee?
0: Okay, well, I would I would say I'm a, I'm a stereotypical Gen Xer in that I don't want to be put in a box. Okay. Um, so who am I? I don't know, because whatever we say and decide I am, I will instantly have to go be or do something else, um, to prove that's not the box I belong in. But that's as far as I can be stereotyped as anything. Um and I resist even that. Um I don't know. I don't
1: I don't know. Where who, are you from?
0: I don't know who I am. Um I am from a small town in Connecticut. Um I lived there till I was 20 ish moved to Missoula to go to college um only school I applied to it just sounded romantic right Montana like go west um and it was amazing and it was this perfect experience um and this really like What it was like to be in Missoula versus what it was like to grow up. 20 years of this is how the world works. I get to Missoula. My apartment was in the Babs, so on the corner of um, 4th and Higgins. And I'm walking over the Higgins Street Bridge, like my first day in town. And as I'm walking into downtown, all the people walking the other direction are looking me in the eye. And they're saying things like, hi. (laughs) And how's it going? And, how are ya? And by the time I got halfway across the bridge, I had this moment of like, what is wrong with these people? Like, what do I look like someone they know? Like, why is everybody talking to me? Why won't they just leave me alone? And it turns out that they're just nice and, and, and caring about connection and you know, eye contact and words. And that was, it, it wasn't how I was raised. Um, I was raised that you leave that barrier. I like the Montana way of doing things better. I like that you wave on a dirt road. I like that you say hi to people as you're walking past them. I go out of my way to make sure I'm saying hi to people and greeting them sincerely in um, airports or other places. You know, the person's waving your ticket before you board your flight. How are you? How's your day today? Pausing, waiting for the answer because... I want the answer, like I want, I want that person to feel seen by at least someone in that chunk of time. But I didn't know that that was a way of being until I got to Missoula um, and it freaked me out. And then I realized I loved it and it was a way better way to be in the world.
1: I want to make sure that people have a real understanding beyond my introduction of, of what Headframe Spirits is and sort of where you were, where it came from. So if you could just tell that story.
0: So Headframe is a um, distillery and a distillation equipment manufacturing company. So we distill our own spirits um, at a building on Montana Street in Uptown Butte. The building was built in 1919, um, and it was built originally as the Butte Buick Company. And it, um, what used to be the car showroom floor is now the distillery floor with a still set up in the corner. And um, so we distill our spirits there and we run a tasting room there. And the tasting room, as you said, has this beautiful bar in it um, that's on loan to us from the World Museum of Mining. Um, it's just a treasured piece of Butte history that we have this awesome privilege of getting to display. Um, and the space there is really designed as a way to connect with Butte's past and present um, In the sense that, you know, every product we make, we name after a mine in Butte. Most of our drink names are named to connect to either Butte person, personality, story, um, mind, just piece of Butte history. Um, So we really do work to connect the experience of being in Butte in the present with where we came from and use that as a, right, that's the vector to the future, too.
1: And Courtney, can you give listeners an idea of where we are right now?
0: Okay, well, I'm going to ask, unless you're driving, um, I'm going to ask the listener to close their eyes and um, picture Butte. Um, I think that probably most of the listeners have this sense of, of Butte. You, know, you look at the hill as you're driving through, and um, we're ignoring the Superfund site, we're ignoring the pit, we're ignoring the mining. Um, we're going to focus on, on the other side of the hill and the brick buildings interspersed with these big metal structures that are the headframes, um, that dot the landscape in Butte. Um, but we are not on the highway. We are actually at the, um, immediate Western boundary of the Berkeley pit. Um, so we are sitting immediately adjacent um, to, like, Butte's, you know, legacy of of mining there. Um, And we are sitting at um, my office, which is at the Kelly Mineyard. It was the last of the underground mines to close. So with your eyes closed, if you look south, you can see the highlands laid out in front of you. You see all of the flats of Butte laid out, and then you see the highlands mountains behind them. You look to your left a little bit, and there's the East Ridge, and you've got the Berkeley Pit um, and the uh, Continental Pit, the active mine that, that Montana Resources is mining, um, between us and the East Ridge. And then if you look over to your right, to the west of us, you get to see other head frames and um, buildings in, in the heart of Uptown Butte. So we're just really in this beautiful, like, little part of of the the geographic space um but also the historic space too
1: you know i want to talk to you about leadership but i I, first want to continue talking about butte a little bit and your connection to this place and just kind of like when it really started to take root and and what it means to you now
0: i felt really privileged to come back to Montana. I didn't really know anything about Butte. That's not true. Living in Missoula for three years, going to college, getting my degree. All I knew about Butte was that it was a place that you would talk down about. Um, you know, if you talked about it at all, it was in a pejorative sense. Um, I hadn't spent any time there. I'd driven through it, but I hadn't spent any time. I didn't know the place, and then all of a sudden, I became its newest resident, um, and so I could see it through the eyes of a person who loved Montana and knew it as, you know, Missoula, um, and then I got to learn it as, you know, this this very different thing that it is like actually on the ground here. And listen to the stories of the kids who grew up here and hear the sensitivity from Butte people when other people, you know, those same stories that I'd hear in Missoula about like going to Butte for a St. Patrick's Day, you know, and going to like get in a fight or be careful because, you know, they'll just, you know, they'll just get drunk and punch you right in the face. Um, You know, hearing all of it from Butte is a really different thing than hearing it from Missoula. Um, And it's really easy to be defensive about it. You know, hey, it's not like that here. And, and, you know, and I felt defensive about it. And then, you know, I don't know. I mean, I I feel really privileged for a number of years to do the IT work that I did, to go into different businesses, small businesses, you know, mom-and-pop shops to big corporate entities and – get a sense of, you know, sort of what this place meant to these people and what the work was that they were doing, you know, with or for or in the community. And, um, you know, I felt like I had this great opportunity to see it through, see Butte through all of these different sets of eyes. And by the time we were getting ready to open Headframe, I think that I'd sort of assembled all of this thinking into something a little more coherent um, which was really this notion that if there's a, a poor reputation to bute, that may have been earned and deserved, and that may have been more true a hundred years ago, that may have been true even, you know, 50 years ago, but it really isn't now. And the audience the most important audience to be hearing better stories about Butte is Butte. Um, is are the people who have had the hardest time hearing um, just crappy stories about themselves and about their place in the world and about their community and about their role in you know Superfund and about this legacy of excellence and profit and growth and? You know, corruption and all the rest of the stuff that went with it. Um, but all this notion that it's best is it in its past, and you know that what what's left will gladly punch you in the face at 2 am. in the bar is um, is not really a legacy to feel pride around. And so if we need better stories, it really is the folks who are here who need to hear those stories first. And it's folks around the rest of Montana that need to hear those stories second. Um, the picture they reflect back to us of this corner of the world should be a little kinder, um, should be a little lovelier, and should be a little more rooted in who Butte is now and maybe not so much what Butte used to be. Um, and so a lot of that had to do with how we thought about um, what we could accomplish with Headframe. It's not so much about making drinks, building distillation equipment. It's it's about shifting a community's mindset about itself, and it's about shifting a, a state's mindset about a community. But all the stuff that makes Butte Butte is freaking awesome. Like garbage omelets that... that Eminem, you know, like 4am, like that was a treat back before we had children. Like that was the best. What a ridiculous, like fun, goofy, sort of lawless town full of all sorts of different types of people. And everybody's like weird and awesome in their own ways. And, and we just roll with it. There's just this like goodness and kindness. And connection and care for one another. And I think that comes from the mining history. You know, the the story goes that, you know, men who were enemies above ground and gladly fight each other in a bar, you know, at 2 a.m. Um, underground were brothers and would risk their own lives to defend one another's safety. And, and that's just part of where we came from as a community um you know you took care of each other because you had to you never knew when it was going to be your turn to have a really bad day underground um or your turn to be the the spouse or the kid or the parent of the minor who had the really bad day so you just all took care of each other um and I think that's part of Butte's legacy that's carried on, that's so beautiful and just connects with my heart.
1: Courtney, how do you define leadership?
0: I feel like it's inspiring people to align around a shared vision, and giving them the tools and resources that they need in order to get there.
1: And how about a term we throw around quite a bit in Leadership Montana and frankly feels quite relevant today, which is adaptive leadership. I wonder how you would define that.
0: So I like the question, except I'm going to challenge that I actually think that all leadership needs to be adaptive leadership um that unless we're leading in a vacuum change is inevitable um and and should be welcomed and encouraged and um, nurtured as part of the process and that if if our intent is to maintain a status quo rather than to encourage personal development I mean even if the even if the I will use the word vector right the vector that we're on isn't changing we're moving in that same direction we've got that and and that's stable there's still change there's change in who's showing up there's change in team structure there's change in individual circumstance they're All of that should be welcomed. I think that all great leadership is adaptive leadership. And we're not just adapting to outside change, um, but I think that it really means encouraging um, growth and development and, you know, efficiencies in the work that we're doing and refining processes and... um, finding better ways to cheerlead and reward and encourage and teach and connect and deepen connection and not just between one another, but, you know, internally for the individuals on our teams too. Um, So I disagree with the notion that leadership and adaptive leadership are really all that different. I think that when we're paying attention, all all leadership is adaptive. Um, ideally, we're not always having to deal with adaptations as big as um, as big as COVID years.
1: So, when early March COVID comes, how did Headframe Headframe Spirits adapt?
0: Well, so so the the brief. Version of that is um, in January, we had extended three job offers to employees, two from Texas and one from Bozeman, all who were supposed to start in um, early March and, um, you know, or by late March. Um, we kept those commitments, even though we had shut down our tasting room and had and, and that was a decision that we made um, and announced the day before the state said anything. Um, you know, the day before Butte Silver Bow said anything, the state said anything. We made the decision that we couldn't participate in a St. Patrick's Day if that St. Patrick's Day might put people at risk. Um, so Sunday, March 15th, we made the decision that that would be Headframe's last day in operation until some unknown, um, which is scary as hell because a little bit of a control freak. Um, and so that was, that was sort of terrifying, right? What if that was the end? Um, but we were right in that same boat with everybody else. So we adapted quickly, right? Use the, the tools and the resources that you have to create as much good as you can. And so we started making hand sanitizer, you know, not only did we have ethanol and tanks and packaging equipment, um, we also had a really kick-ass team full of bartenders and spirits producers who were doing neither um, and who needed, needed work. Um, so we were able to create work for our team. Um, the three people who joined us from Texas and Bozeman um, – actually started as hand sanitizer producers and packagers, Um, we actually write into our job descriptions. Every single job description um, at Headframe has 5% of your time doing shit that's really just outside your job description. Um, I have zero patience for anybody saying ever, you know, "Mm, that's not my job. Like, unless you're saying you don't want to operate a forklift because you aren't certified or trained to operate a forklift and it makes you feel unsafe, like you're putting yourself and or others at risk, I've, I've no patience for it. Right. Work needs to be done. Let's do the work. Um, so we take it a step further and actually write it into everybody's job description. So I'm fond of saying that for those three people, um, they got their 5% out of the way, you know, for the next several years. (laughs) Um, but we pivoted, um, I don't like the word pivot. Um I'm really over it. Um, but we you know we adapted um and we made hand sanitizer, and we made meaningful work for people in a scary time, right? We gave people something to do that helped them help keep people safe and healthy. Um, and we communicated honestly and transparently about what we knew and what we didn't know and you know, weekly would lay out for the team, here's, here's where we're at, here's what we know, here's how information's evolving, here are the resources we're trusting. You know, we're paying attention to data, not to rumor. Um, we're gonna keep using data and the best information we have to build our plans. And the data might change and that's okay, um, but we're always gonna be relying on real information. And we did what we could do to take care of our, you know, our, our various communities.
1: You've recently started writing and contributing to Artisan Spirits magazine. And within that, you recently wrote a story about a colleague in the micro distilling industry at Denord Craft Spirits in Minneapolis. Could you share that story with us?
0: I will. Um, you know, we intended to write this, this series of stories about what great leadership looks like. Um, and that was kind of the origin story here. I wanted to write stories about great leadership. And um, so this piece about Chris is actually the second in this series. Um, I wanted to look back at previous challenges um, and learn from leaders in our industry how they handled them. So the goal was to connect my peers in the industry, you know, distillery owners, people who work in distilleries, folks in our industry, with really, like, humanizing and feels these stories about how people handle difficult moments that like the rock stars in our industry are human beings who face challenges and here's how they get through them was kind of the the concept here and and then and then we got a pandemic and so the upshot of the pandemic is I don't need to ask people to reflect back and find a time that was challenging um they can just tell me the story of what now feels like um So the first piece I wrote about was really was around two different distilleries, one in Florida and one in Colorado, and what the owners, like what these hard moments have been for them and how, what they're bringing to those. Um, So what kind of values are they bringing or, you know, how are they arriving at decisions when there isn't enough information? Um, What are they falling back on? And, you know, around what does self-care look like? Because, you know, again, I think that. Um, I don't think that we talk about that enough, and I think in this moment, more than ever, we need to. Um, So this next piece around Chris Montana, and I, I mean, I hands down encourage listeners to look him up. Chris Montana, um, the owner of Dunord Craft Spirits in Minneapolis. Um, He's a stunning human being. Chris and I know each other because uh, we were both on the board for the American Craft Spirits Association together. And Chris, most recently, was our president, and, um, and he's just a cool human being. Turns out he's America's first black distillery owner, um, but I didn't actually know that until um, I was getting ready to to write this article about him. Chris's distillery uh, sits on the same block as the Third Precinct Police Station in Minneapolis. Um, which was the one that was um, burned in the rioting um, following George Floyd's death. And uh, Chris's distillery was badly damaged um, in the rioting, as was the apartment building that he was staying in. And in the span of less than a week, um, Chris went from owning and running a business to, to having a business that was Badly damaged and sort of out of commission, um, to you know, living in in a lack of safety um, following you know George Floyd's murder, and uh, you know being then um, forced out of his apartment um, because it wasn't safe either, and um, literally in the next two days he turned the destroyed part of his distillery, his warehouse, his employees had come back and put black owned business signs in the tasting room and in their production space, but not in the warehouse. And, um, his, his, so his warehouse was what was damaged. Um, he cleared it out and opened a food pantry and the next day, no, the day before, Um, while clearing out that space so it could become a food pantry, announced the Do Nord Riot Recovery Fund um, that to date has raised over $750,000. Listeners, if you're interested, you can find it on GoFundMe. Um, It's raised over $750,000 and has received over $1.6 million in requests for funding. Um, These are $15,000 grants that are being given out to help black and brown-owned businesses recover from, from the rioting and the damage. Um, and Chris's leadership to me is stunning. During one of the worst weeks of his life, he came up with, he articulated to the world this, this three-point plan that he had around connecting people with this immediate need for food in this newly created food desert in Minneapolis, um, around assisting small businesses, um, especially minority businesses, in getting their doors back open, Um, and this third vision for taking this destroyed swath of Minneapolis and rebuilding it into something better. And it, he's so deeply connected with the why behind all of this, Um, you know, why this matters to him, why it matters to Minneapolis, why that community deserves better. Um, And he's immediately connected to what makes him care. What makes him stand up and want to accept responsibility for doing this work? And like any great leader, you say, so you've accomplished all of these things. And he says, no, I didn't. He said it was all these other people. You know, I just had these ideas. And it was all these other people. It was these people I've worked with before who know how to organize and who are connected to food pantries who were able to kind of get that off the ground. And it's, you know, all, it's the 11,000-plus donors who made, you know, the fund happen. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's politicians and it's lenders and, and others who are going to help make this other vision happen. You know, it's not about – it's never about him um, he's he's just this stunning example of amazing leadership. Um and he has this beautiful vision for the world he wants his kids to grow up in. Um, and a world where they're in no way judged by their color. And um you know, I'm inspired by, by his vision and I wanna live in that world with him. Um And so I feel really privileged to be let in enough and have a platform where I get to tell stories like Chris's.
1: What jumps out to me at this story is, there's so many things that jump out, but what really jumps out to me is, wouldn't it be the most understandable reaction ever for Chris Montana to have just felt anger?
0: I love that you asked that because I... I asked something along those lines as well. And he said, people can either do nothing or they can do literally anything else. And I chose anything else. And I agree with you. I think that in so many moments, it's so easy and and so fair for us to think about saying, you know this just sucks or you know why did this happen to me or why is this on my plate or damn it you know why why me um here's how this is unfair here's how this sucks um I think part of what I see great leaders do is Maybe give that just enough time to acknowledge it, and then that 's done um, and then it becomes what can I do right what can i what can I do in response yeah it 's unfair, yeah, it sucks, um, but this is my situation, this is my challenge, this is my lot, um, so what am I going to do with it, and I think i think that's part of what separates excellent leaders from others i think it's easy to dwell and you know get mired in the unjustness or the stress or the anger or the resistance or the unfairness um i think great leaders say okay and
1: let's get to work Where can folks go to read your article?
0: Um, So it will be available through Artisan Spirits magazine, but they do an online version as well.
1: I just think it's so important, and we talk about on every episode, this idea that value identification is great. It's essential, in fact, but it's not enough, right? A dollar and value identification will get you a lousy cup of coffee. I think it's about translating that to committed action. And you've talked about how your values are community and courage. And I think you've talked about community a lot. And I want to hear you talk about courage. I don't know how to draw
0: the Venn diagram for it. But my happy place has always been sort of outside of my happy place. Um, I grew up not thinking very highly of myself. Um, And I'm not sure why. I grew up not thinking that, I don't know, that I could be whatever I wanted when I grew up. And I don't know that I really thought about it much at all. Um, I didn't grow up pushing myself or challenging myself. It really wasn't until I went to college that I even learned that I had the capacity to be an excellent student, you know, a great learner, a curious mind. Well, shoot, if I can do that, I wonder what else I can do. Um, you know, there's that reveal sometimes in superhero movies where, you know, like Spider Man has to figure out what all he can do. You know, he figures out like the sticky fingers that he can climb a wall and he's like, Wow, this is so cool. Right? Like you kind of gotta learn your way into your superpower. And um I sort of feel like my whole life has been that, like learning, like, wow, I can do this. Holy smokes, I can do that it just takes, it takes pushing myself. Um, and, and I like doing that. And the older I get sort of the higher the stakes feel, um, you know, the more responsibility I have for others and therefore the more, um, I feel like I have at risk. Um, but I don't want to live my whole life, not knowing what I'm capable of. Um, And I feel like it's a privilege to live a life that has space where that can be a question that gets some energy and attention. I mean, even in our backyard in Butte and across Montana, there are are people who are concerned about where their next meal comes from. There are people who in this particular moment are concerned about Um, what it's going to look like for them or their family or their community when kids go back to school. Um, we've got, we've got people wrestling with things that are serious. It's a huge privilege to care about and be able to give some energy to figuring out what it is I'm capable of. Um, but I want to figure out what I'm capable of, and I'm grateful for the, for the opportunity that my life has afforded me. Um, I know that there are some things that I have done that are probably sort of brave or courageous. Um, there are a handful that I would point to and say, yeah, I agree. Um, and there, there are many more I haven't done yet. Um and I wanna know what that looks like. And I actually call on um lots of amazing human beings that I know around this state, some of whom I know through Leadership Montana, some of them I know other ways. Um and I, you know, I channel them sometimes to help reinforce my my courage. Um we get one shot at Live in this life. Don't you want to see what you're made of? What you're capable of? I do. To what end? Leaving the world a little bit better for me having been in it.
1: So I asked you for a story of your choice that you could share with listeners. Go ahead.
0: Well, for my classmates in Leadership, Montana, they've heard this story already. And they heard it the first time I told it, and they heard it the second time I told it, which are the only two times I've told it. Um, but I'm getting better at it, and I'm getting better at understanding what it means and, you know, why I picked it as a story to tell. Um, and so the story is the story of me in the kindergarten Halloween parade, um, so I had just turned five. I was I was five years old and a week um, in the kindergarten Halloween parade, and um, my mom was a stay-at-home mom at the time. My dad worked about an hour away. My parents had one car, so um, you know, dad would take the car, and then it was sometimes generally like after dinner that mom would go to the grocery store and you know run run errands and things. And um, and I that's important because. At this Halloween parade, both of my parents were there, um, which means, you know, dad took the day off of work um, to be able to be there with mom. And mom had made this beautiful witch's costume for me. She'd sewn the dress and the matching cape and um, the big pointy hat. She had painted my face green and braided my then really long hair into these tiny tight braids the night before um, while it was still wet so that it would dry, you know, all kinked out um, in the morning when the braids came out and, you know, gave me this little red broom to go along with it and had me practice saying, you know, I'll get you my pretty And, um, and sent me to school for the parade. And um, it turns out witches were popular that year and there was another little girl in my class who was a witch and, um, and she didn't have a little pointy hat. Um, and so I gave her mine because I wanted her to have a little pointy hat. And there was another little witch in my class who didn't have a cape and so I gave her my cape because, I don't know, because a witch needs a cape. And there was another little witch that didn't have a broom. Um, so I gave her my broom so that she could have a broom for her outfit for the parade. And so my dad's taken the day off of work. And, you know, my mom's there as well. And I see them in the parade because parade's exciting. You know, I see them. I'm looking for them. I finally see them. I wave to them. Um, and I failed to comprehend the look that I was getting um, from them. But, you know, afterwards... Um, we had the discussion how, um, my mom had worked so hard on that costume. It was really disappointing to see me just walking through the parade in a little black dress with a green face. And for decades, that was how I carried the story, um, was it was a story of being a disappointment, um, you know, a story of letting people down. And and it really wasn't you know, maybe it really wasn't until Leadership, Montana, that I realized that that was not the story. The story is actually the story of this really, like, sweet, kind kid who took all of the things that she had and shared them with the people in her tiny little classroom community. And the story is that I've been this same person my entire life, that the things that make me care about this community are things that have been part of me since the get-go. I just am this person. I have always measured my success by the success of others by being able to amplify awesome for other people. And my version of that story is the version of that story that's right. It's the version that matters and it's the only one that deserves care and attention. And so I love that story. You know, those things that feel like such a light touch at the time. You know, I'm sure my parents didn't think that they were, you know, shifting the trajectory of how I saw myself in the world. But I kind of think a little bit like that it did. Um, And that, you know, my takeaway for a long time was that whatever my gut instinct is for how to show up is probably not trustworthy. Like I shouldn't trust myself to be a good judge of how to show up for a moment because I might be wrong and I might just be failing people. Um, and the story is actually so much more like interesting and impactful than that. The story is, you know, all of that should just shut up And we should just all be allowed to be awesome.
1: Amazeballs.
0: Amazeballs. you. (laughs) (laughs) We should. We should be allowed to be our own amazeballs selves.
1: Lightning round. You ready? I hope so. Business success looks like. Business success is
0: defined by the greater impact that you have on community. And community to me means concentric circles of, you know, first my family, then my team, then my community of Butte, then my community of Montana, then my community of industry, and then my community of just the world. It is not a return to shareholders, it is a return to a larger community than that.
1: The reason I am choosing, the reason Courtney McKee and John McKee are choosing not to hand their business to their children, to your children, but rather to your employees is?
0: Um, so there's sort of two. Um, number one, because I think that the people who should own a business are the people who care about it have the knowledge and skill to run it and have that inherent investment in its success. And um, number two, um, because businesses that pass down generation to generation um, actually perform poorer. Um, And there's actually Freakonomics did a really good podcast about it called Scientology, S-C-I-O-N-T-O-L-O-G-Y. It's a really good one. Um, And then third, because don't you think that if you're saddled with being told what your future holds that that's like way less interesting than having to go out and figure it out for yourself? I don't want to take that away from Coop and Toos. I want them to go like figure their own shit out and like figure out what they get excited about and not be stuck with something mom and dad told them they had to deal with. I want them to go find their own bliss.
1: The work of becoming the best version of myself on a day-to-day scale looks like.
0: Mind, body, and spirit every day. Um, by mind, I mean freaking therapy. Um, not every day, but every week. Um, by body, I mean exercise because it makes my brain run better. Um, and by spirit, I mean my, my meditation practice um, and my connection with the group of kick-ass Buddhists I get to hang out with, you know, virtually once a week, um, my little sangha, my community, um, and intentionally giving energy to each of those things because they fill me up and they hone me. And they help me show up as the best version of me. Mind, body,
1: spirit. Something you find funny that other people don't. Or option B is the last time you like laughed so hard you almost peed your pants.
0: I have laughed so hard I have actually peed my pants and I am not shy about it. <laughs> um, I have peed my pants And then laughed about it. Um, But that's a pregnancy story. That's a different story. And that's only because I have such a rad husband who could make you laugh after peeing your pants. Sort of awesome. How's that for an answer to your question? And also, really good. And also badgers. Badgers are hilarious.
1: Badgers? Are hilarious.
0: Why is that? I don't know. They just are. They just freaking crack me up.
1: The one book that I would recommend to listeners.
0: Okay. So... I think that if we're trying to encourage our development as leaders, Brene Brown's book, Dare to Lead, is absolutely, like, really an imperative read. I think that if we just want to read something because it's awesome, um, Neil Gaiman's Sandman series of graphic novels are stunning stories told and illustrated absolutely beautifully they are freaking works of art um and if we're letting our brain have some downtime instead of working so hard i would recommend neil gaiman's sandman graphic novel
1: if you could snap your fingers and change one thing in montana right now what would it be you look excited
0: well i don't know i mean that feels like okay i'm initially struck by all of the things that i would be failing at Because I'd only be doing one thing. Um, I would get Congress to allocate $2 billion to fill in the Berkeley pit and restore it back into a hillside. And I would change this community's perception of itself and the state of Montana's perception of Butte. For the rest of time.
1: Okay, this is actually the final stretch. I'm just going to say one word and you just give your reaction to that. 2020.
0: A great opportunity for all of us to learn what we are made of. Butte. Oh, big damn deal. Montana. Where my heart is. Tacos. (laughs) Yes, please. (laughs) Without the cilantro.
1: Oh my God! Can I tell you that I was gonna put cilantro on this list, and I was like, "No, that's probably too like specific." But does it taste like soap? I have to you? A soap thing. Oh,
0: people of it's it's oh. traced to the genetics of people of Eastern European descent. Um, like when they figured that out a few years ago, I felt like vindicated.
1: Oh, that there is an explanation. That there is like a reason a, that it's yeah. not just
0: that I'm a jerk. <laughs> It's not that I'm a bad person. It's that it's my genetics. Like I am a jerk because of my genes. That,
1: is, that must limit you so much though. Oh, it sucks. Yeah. And then you're
0: so shitty to other people when they're like, we want to make you Thai food. And you're like, can you please make sure that there's no salon to put on so anything true. because other than just going to like sit here and like pick it. St- Ugh.
1: So even uh, if it's in there, it's sprinkled, you're, it's over it, for Anything. You. Anything. Yikes. Yeah. Last one, Courtney. Connection.
0: Isn't that sort of the purpose of all of the things? What's the point of doing any of it if we're doing it in a vacuum? I mean, gosh, if we're not doing all of this life, like with and for one another, then what are we aiming for?
1: Courtney McKee. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much to Courtney McKee for coming on the show. And thanks to you for listening in. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're up for it, Tell a friend about the show too. We'd love to hear your feedback as well. Please email me, Eric, E R I C, at leadershipmontana.org. Our intro song is a rendition of the Montana State Song by Scott Gudger, and our other music is from Blue Dot Sessions. We'll see you in two weeks with our next episode. Until then, for Leadership Montana, I'm Eric Halverson, and this is Listen First Montana.